to anyone listening out there, if you have a relative with a neurodegenerative disorder, it's crazy for them not to try CBD. One of the things that cannabinoids can do is cause new brain cell growth. Love and light, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of El Podcast, the greatest virtual happy hour in the world, hosted by yours truly, Kai Primo and Jesse Wright. Today, I'm very excited for this episode because we are going to discuss all things cannabis and health. Our guest today is Lex Pelger. He is a writer, a scientist, and lecturer on cannabis, psychedelics, and the endocannabinoid system. Lex studied biochemistry and molecular biology at Boston University, then worked in a stem cell lab at New York Medical College. He also creates informative content for cannabis and psychedelic companies. He is producing his newsletter, called the cannabinoids and the people and it's that's on substack we'll link everything on the bio or in the description of this video if you guys aren't subscribed on youtube please find us and subscribe and also smash the like button it helps us out in the algorithm so that we can continue bringing content like this thank you so much for joining us this is awesome yeah thanks so much for having me good to see you both and by the way happy hour Happy hour. Um, I'm not sure, Lex, if you've got a beverage or a water. <laughs> we'll, we'll take water. Mm -hmm. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Just assume it's vodka. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if it's white, it's vodka. <laughs> awesome. Well, Lex, tell us about yourself and kind of what got you into cannabis and psychedelics. What's that journey like? It was actually very normal, it, which is kind of a fun thing because I write about drugs, and so I collect people's stories. And all of my friends' stories are often over-the-top and fascinating, like, you know, five days of 10 different drugs at Burning Man and stuff like that. And my journey has been pretty straightforward. I got into cannabis in high school, and it helped with the, you know, the anxiety and making a little bit of sense out of life. And then in college, I started just doing walks with magic mushrooms and, and friends through city parks. And there's this great drug writer, Victor Pelley. Of it. And he says that your first good experience of drugs and sex will forever flavor the rest. So kind of whatever you'd like for your first sex and your first psychedelic trip, you tend to keep liking that. So for me, my favorite thing is still walking through the woods with a couple of friends on psychedelics. That's still my favorite use of everything I've seen. I really liked the science of them because it was so fascinating. And I liked how they help people. But I really got into writing about cannabis more than psychedelics because of my grandmother's Parkinson's. I wish I knew more of what I know now about what CBD can help, what low levels of THC in cannabis can help. And it's actually one of the things I do is consultations, especially for older folks and patients, about how they can use cannabis and CBD and even low amounts of psychedelics for themselves. So you can look that up at whitewhalecreations.com, my site. And I have a bunch of different FAQs for how to use it for your neurodegenerative disorder or anxiety, PTSD, things like that. It's worth exploring for so many different disease conditions, but it's complicated and it's often a yin and yang kind of thing going on. So it's never a very straight answer like with other pharmaceuticals, but there's a lot of evidence that's worth trying in a lot of different directions. And that's what fascinates me so much. And I started writing books about it. That's why I have these graphic novels based on Moby Dick to explain cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. And so three of those are on my site now. So I really like the storytelling and the science around these drugs. 
people often are deficient in some kind of neurotransmitter or sensation in their body, and they need a little bit more to help them get even. You know, if you have ADHD, it's a little bit of speed. And if you have certain imbalances, a little bit of cannabinoids can help as well. I always assumed that they were good for the kind of things people talked about in the background, but I didn't really start studying it until my grandmother and wanting to write my first book about cannabis. And then I just started to get overwhelmed because I'm like, how can I even explain all of this? Because the endocannabinoid system we all possess is so complex and so much going on. And cannabis itself is a very complex plant with a lot of molecules and you never know what you're going to get. And it's not easy to advise people because they have to pay attention themselves, take notes. Like it's not, it's not often what we want out of medicine. We want just to be handed the answer and Cannabis can be that. Sometimes just this much every day and you're just so much better. But other times it's a journey and you need to figure out what works. And so that was also part of the fascination that I thought I could write this book in a year, but then it took me – that was my great hubris. It took me five years just to get the research done, and now it's been a couple more years writing out how much there is. Let's talk about the endocannabinoid system. Can you describe what the endocannabinoid system is? Sure. And if people are more watchers, go onto YouTube and look up the documentary, The Scientist. It's technically the story of Raphael Meshulam, who's known as the father of the endocannabinoid system. So it's nice to see all of these important people who do the science, but they also, of course, do a really great explanation of what I'm going to try to do now in a couple of paragraphs. And it's nice for some people, I think, to be able to see what we're talking about here. That's why I'm using whales to stand in for the cannabinoids in my books, but we won't get too much into that. So the endocannabinoid system is cool because it's spread across all of the highest levels of your brain and it's on all the cells of your body. And the two receptors we know are the CB1 receptor and the CB2 receptor. Just like you have receptors for serotonin and dopamine and endorphins, it turns out that you have these receptors for cannabinoids and the CB1s are mostly in your brain, all the higher levels of your brain, none of the lower levels. That's why you can't overdose on cannabis because it's, it's not in like the breathing regions and the motion regions as much. And so then the CB2 receptors are on every tissue of your body, and it, they're very much tied up with the immune system. And cannabis helps to modulate the immune system. That's why it's so worthwhile for various autoimmune disorders where the body's attacking itself. The cannabinoids can be good for coming in and say, slow down, stop attacking. What's so fascinating about the endocannabinoid system is even though it was only first discovered in the late 80s and early 90s, in the last 25 years or so, we realized that it's one of the most fundamental systems of life. It goes all the way back to sea sponges. Any animal with a spinal column has an endocannabinoid system. And it's basically a system of balance, of homeostasis. And that's why cannabis helps in so many different directions because it interacts with all of the major neurotransmitter systems that you hear about. It modulates them. So it works to calm things down in all these different directions, especially because it's so closely tied to our hormonal system, our immune system, and our brain, our neuronal system. And those are arguably the three most important, complex, mysterious systems in your body, your hormones, your immune system, and your brain. And the endocannabinoids connect all of that. And they pass messages between all of that. There is so much scientific basis for why we're seeing all of these clinical reports and surveys of people saying, hey, cannabis helped me with this rare little disease that no one's hardly studying. But I know it works for me and what else matters.
So we were basically born with cannabinoid receptors in our body. It baffles me why cannabis was not legal for a very long time. It's a good question. The reason Moby Dick works so well for this is because half the story is about the whale. The other half is about Captain Ahab, this monomaniacal, hate-filled character trying to destroy something that's beautiful. And that is the war on drugs. That's a prohibition against changing your own consciousness that's always been there. So the first one was Harry Ainslinger in the 30s. Then it was Nixon. Then it was Reagan. And let's not let out the Democrats. Like Obama destroyed more plant, cannabis plants in the states than any other president ever did. No presidents are good on the war on drugs. The first research happened with discovering the cannabinoids in like the 1880s. Right after the Civil War, people were working, trying to figure out why this worked. So we knew it was working. It was available from all the corner drugstores. Opium and, and cannabis were there, and they were helpful. The entire reason for the prohibition is only racism. It is a deep-seated, terrible American version of racism. You'll hear stories from people read Jack Herrera, the guy known for spreading hemp and how useful hemp is. He talked about this a lot in the 80s. He uncovered a lot of the history. But he saw a big industrial conspiracy to get hemp banned because it wasn't good for the profits of people manufacturing newspapers and things like that. It seems like that really didn't play much into it. It was simply because the people using cannabis were brown and black, and they couldn't make those people illegal, so they made their drugs illegal. And the first anti-cannabis laws in the country were not at the federal level or even at the state level. They were individual cities making it illegal, and it was cities close to the border with Mexico and then going farther up like Colorado. As Latinos moved north, the cannabis bans followed them because of the way to harass those people. And that just kept happening. Nixon especially, his henchman, Hadelman, said that – said 20 years later, he's like, of course we knew these drugs weren't as bad as we were saying. But we knew that if we linked the anti-war movement to – cannabis and the black activists to heroin, we could beat them up on the nightly news every night and use that as a way to destroy them. And it worked. The war on drugs is not a failure. The war on drugs is a wildly successful project for doing exactly what it was designed to do. And it is birthed in such a racist manner, and it still gets fulfilled in such a racist manner. I think one of the hardest parts about watching this rollout of cannabis these days is that it's such a white takeover of the business. And in some states where you have people legally selling it, there are people sitting in jail still for either possessing it or selling it. It's a moral travesty that sadly is so American. But I got off top yeah. from the topic from the endocannabinoid system. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's all it's all too fascinating. Like we're built with receptors. That means we're meant to have it. So talk about Man. what are the main differences between cannabis and hemp and THC and CBD and its benefits to our health? Mm -hmm. It's a great question because I think so often people don't know much about this because they've been busy with other things, just don't know these basic terms, and they get scared to ask. But it is quite complicated, and it does take a, as simple a run-through as it can be given. And so cannabis is the overall plant that we call marijuana, and there are different subtypes of it, but it's all one species. And hemp is simply cannabis with a low level of THC. And THC is the main psychoactive molecule or cannabinoid inside cannabis. And CBD is the main non-psychoactive cannabinoid inside the plant. So in general, 
Marijuana that gets you high is going to be high in THC and have a little bit of CBD and some of the other cannabinoids and the terpenes that give the smell. A hemp plant is usually going to be rich in CBD and have very low levels of THC and won't cause any psychoactive effect. And that's why they work so well together. It seems like oftentimes what they call a full-spectrum plant, which means one that has all of the cannabinoids in it, all the terpenes in it, that does better than the individual molecules by themselves. If you take just THC, patients also often report it's like getting kicked by a mule. It's just too strong. You get too high. And CBD protects the brain from getting too high. That's why if you're trying to help an older person who is scared of THC and the psychoactive effects, always start them on a week or two of CBD oil, also known as hemp oil, because that CBD is going to not only balance their endocannabinoid system for a while and help with anxiety and things like that, it also by its nature somewhat lowers the effectiveness of THC binding your CB1 receptors and getting you high. So it protects people from getting too high. And actually one trick that you hear about in California is if you've only given your grandmother too many edibles and she's way too high, give her a dab, like a concentrated oil shot, shot that you can smoke in through your lungs of CBD oil, of just pure CBD oil. And it's like a ripcord that just stops the highness from being nearly so intense. It might not go away all the way, but it's like clearing the cobwebs out like that. It's great for people to take oral amounts of THC and CBD that work, can work all day, but it's really helpful to have vape pens as well because vape pens work in a minute or two. And so if you're having a flare-up of pain, you can take a hit from your THC vape pen and your CBD vape pen to kind of balance out the help that you could be getting there. So those are the main ones to know, THC and CBD. There are a couple other minor ones that you can be sold on the market and things like that, but those are the, the main cannabinoids that people starting off with are going to be working with. Cannabinoid receptors receive cannabinoids. What is happening in the body? Can you walk us through what is the body doing as soon as they receive? Hmm? It's a great question. And again, if people like charts, look up a blog post from a guy called Prof of Pot. And it's called THC CBD Promiscuous Binding. If you put that in the Google, that'll be enough to get it. He lays out this chart about all of the things that THC and CBD bind to. And it's great. It's why the famed professor, Dr. Vincenzo DiMarzo, calls CBD a Swiss army knife. Because CBD doesn't uh, only bind to your CB1 receptors up here and your CB2 receptors down here. It also interacts with your serotonin receptors, often known as your happiness molecules. It interacts with your dopamine receptors, which uh, help to regulate motion and movement as well as directed action and just deciding to do things. And a really big deal, though a little bit of a newer chemical corner, they also regulate GABA and glutamate. And so these aren't the two sexy neurotransmitters you always hear about, but they're probably the most important in a sense because glutamate is your brain's basic excitatory neurotransmitter. So when a neuron wants to pass on a message, the green light is glutamate. And then GABA is the red light. It's the inhibitory neurotransmitter. As Stephen Wright said, GABA and glutamate, it's like putting a dehumidifier and a humidifier in the same room and letting them fight it out. And 
that's what CBD especially can help do in the system. It can balance the, the excitation, excitation in certain parts of your brain with a inhibition in other parts of the brain and kind of bring the whole brain back to a more balanced state. CBD also binds some other neurotransmitters that aren't even as famous as that. It can change genetic transcription. So the turning on and off of genes that actually happens in the nucleus, in the center of your cell where the DNA is, CBD turns genes on and off. I saw in one skin study, it turned off and or on like 250 different genes. So that's what makes studying CBD especially so much fun is you don't know how it's working. You might see in a mouse that it lowers signs of anxiety or pain, but is it using serotonin? Is it changing what genes are being turned on related to pain? Is it working with the endorphins, which is one I forgot to mention. It works with your body's own pain system as well. So CBD and THC, to a lesser extent, change so many different important systems in the body that we can often measure that it works in humans with a certain percentage reduction in pain, but we're not sure exactly how it's working. To me, that part is really fascinating. What are some of your incredible case studies that you've seen? That's a great question. I think three come to mind then. And one that got me very much into this is two nephews with who are on the autism spectrum. Their mother had, had tried everything, all the different techniques out there, and finally came upon CBD. And it was just six weeks of a moderate amount of CBD, 10 to 20 milligrams per day. And she saw dramatic changes in both her kids. One who probably wouldn't have ever left the house is now on the basketball team and about to go to college and just com a complete shift on the possibilities open to him in the world. Um, and for his brother, some of those changes weren't quite as intense, but the the help with anxiety and emotional balance were just fantastic. And it's, it changed everything for this family. There's such a strong underground movement of parents dealing with kids on the autism spectrum, using this and finding a really helpful tool. Does it change everything? I mean, of course not. But so many parents have found high levels of CBD and low levels of THC to be tools very much worth having. To anyone listening out there, if you have a relative with a neurodegenerative disorder, it's crazy for them not to try CBD at least. You might not see the change the first week, but one of the things the cannabinoids can do is cause new brain cell growth. That's called neurogenesis. It can also cause new connections to form between neurons. And that's kind of crazy because we didn't believe neurogenesis happened until like 20 years ago. We thought the brain always had the same number of molecules or cells. And it turns out it is growing new cells. And this classic psychedelics and the cannabinoids help to cause that. We're not sure that's why the cannabinoids are helpful for MS and Parkinson's and ALS. The patient I'm thinking of is an MS patient who the medications had just has stopped working as well as they used to. And the first time that she tried some CBD oil and a tiny hit of a THC vape pen, she just ran up the stairs for the first time in years. Her husband said he hadn't seen anything like it. She was just bubbly and giggly and could function like she hadn't seen in the longest time. It was huge. It's not going to prevent the end that is going to be coming, but it can absolutely give you more good years than you would have had otherwise. It's just worth exploring because it's not that difficult 
just be patient with it. If you're even over 50, you should be taking 20 to 40 milligrams of CBD per day because it's so protective of the brain. It does other good things, but even if you're not feeling it, I know some vitamins are like, oh, I don't know if this is working. CBD, I think you'll know it's working. And even if you don't, it is. It protects the brain in such a huge number of ways. The last case study I think of is a veteran I know with PTSD. And it's actually a story you often hear is that the medications were terrible. You get fat. You can't perform sexually. They don't do that much for the symptoms of reacting so strongly to certain stimuli. And then you come along to cannabis, and it does what so many other medications do, and it does it without nearly as many side effects. And what's interesting is for for very complex mental conditions like that, it often seems like high levels of THC are what's necessary. And that can be difficult. THC can make it hard to drive, hard to do your job, perhaps hard to interact with your family because you're a little bit too loopy. But one thing to say is when people have serious conditions, it seems like often the THC getting you high part gets eaten by the condition itself. When people are taking this for cancer pain and eating tons of THC, they don't get as high as perhaps a more regular patient would. And so for this vet, he was vaping or uh, pardon me, he was dabbing. So like pretty, and if people know what dabbing is, that's like a very thick hash oil that you basically smoke out of a bong, but because it's not cannabis flower, but concentrated oil, it's just a huge dose of THC. If your medical needs require you to have large amounts of cannabinoids, vaping is a very clean way to get that into your system very quickly. Um, and so he was vaping huge amounts of THC every day. But because tolerance develops to the effects of THC anyway, you know, old stoners have to take a break because after a while the weed doesn't work like it used to. You're just not getting as high. You might still feel it, but you can still function and do your family stuff. And overall, you find life easier to handle being a little bit high, but not in so much pain and reactive fight or flight state all the time. You often hear from people with PTSD that they're taking lots of THC and being able to give up other medications. They have to deal with the fallout of, of a lot of THC, but it's worth it compared to the side effects of what you typically get from pharmaceuticals. Unfortunately, there's very little support from the Veterans Administration. There are pockets of it. It's a very big organization, but they're very slowly getting drug into the future that this is could be the most helpful thing for a lot of people. So there are three areas, mostly related, related to the brain, where I've just seen remarkable results. I got a buddy that was in the military, and he suffers from PTSD. Him and a lot of his military buddies, they're microdosing mushrooms. You're talking about taking THC or CBD for autism and some other issues. What's the difference between microdosing cannabis or microdosing psychedelics? What one benefits a certain condition? Or are they both similar enough where you could use them interchangeably? I do think that people could benefit from microdoses of most anything because at those tiny levels, they, they cause such small effects. People don't talk about microdosing cannabis as much. It's starting to become a thing that people are exploring and trading best practices. I do believe it is worth trying because it it's such a subtle balancer to the system. And there's a strong placebo effect there. And I know sometimes scoffers like to say all of the effects from psychedelics are placebo effect. And the only good studies we have are surveys and the science isn't there yet. Well, sometimes the science isn't strong enough to pick up on subtle effects. And 
the science just hasn't been developed. We've only been looking at this for a couple of years. The microdosing of psychedelics is a very powerful for some people. It seems like for some people it doesn't make that big a difference, but the nice part is you're not risking much when you do this. High levels of THC and psychedelics can push people over the edge mentally, especially if they were close. Like psychosis exists there and you can't believe anyone who says that, that it doesn't. That's why taking small amounts for people with complex mental conditions makes sense. If you can find the source material, it's pretty simple and forgivable and you can't do it that wrong. The, the general sense is just do it every three days take a microdose and a microdose is technically where you just don't feel any head effects. If you feel any kind of psychoactivity or things are starting to get wavy with your visuals, that means you went a little too high. You took what you could call a millidose. There's in between micro and macro, there's milla, but you didn't, you didn't take too much. You could still drive and get away with it at work and all that stuff, but like, you're not quite where you want to be. The microdose really is, is sub perceptual as they say, below you really perceiving that effect. And what you should be feeling is, as uh, a great book by Ayelet Waldman says, just a, a better day. It's not supposed to blow you away. It's not going to cure all your problems, but you find a little bit more focus and creativity in the same place. And it takes some experimentation to, decide, to learn, I think, what kinds of activities are going to be best for you on those kind of days. It might not be your spreadsheet work. It might be more your creative writing work or whatever that looks like for you. The nice part is you try it for a month and you see if that's a better month than the one before. And it's not. You can stop doing it. The, the last advice I'd say is... I think people who are really intrigued by this are often people who did a lot of drugs in the 60s or 70s or 80s in their youth, and then they just haven't bothered because they did the kid job, whatever thing, and now they want to get back into it again. And my advice for them would be, whatever drug you love the most back in those days, that's the one I would microdose. For me, I don't really like LSD at, at regular levels anyway. It's too long and jangly for whatever my nervous system is. Mushrooms always just agreed with me so much more. And I find the same with microdosing. Like a day microdosing LSD and like that same kind of eh. But a day microdosing mushrooms just hits much better. It just is so much more smooth and returns, takes me to a place where I, I really want to be. If you don't know which of those drugs might make sense for you, go for the one that feels best. Just, just like with cannabis, they say you smell it and the nose knows which strain is going to be the best one for you. I think your gut can tell you, even if you haven't taken these psychedelics, you know something about them from what's out there in the atmosphere. And your gut might be telling you, ah, oh, always acid. That's what my friends liked. I like what I hear about it. And for others, like, oh, I got to be earthy. I got to get mushrooms. But ayahuasca, San Pedro, there's a lot of plant medicines out there. Some of them are easier to acquire than others, but if you don't know how to acquire drugs, go on the dark web. It's very easy. There's FAQs out there for you. Any drug you've ever heard of can get shipped to your house within the week. Just use Bitcoin. It's kind of traceable. No one cares about consumers. They're only trying to take down the big networks. <laughs> you can get whatever you want. I don't want to use the word drug. I call them medicines. Let's say there's someone who's just kind of coming to terms that these plants may help me, but I don't know where to begin. How do I start? How do I doze myself? Like, what do I try first? You're right. It is tricky for people. My first advice is if you really care and you really want to do it right is to keep a log. People often don't want to do that, especially with their drug use. But even with your dietary supplements, you can to just write down what you were taking that day and how the day went, the, the goods and the bats. It doesn't have to be anything big, but 
oftentimes I feel like you don't even need to go back and read it to know what it said, but you have to write it. You have to sit there and pay attention and get the words down, and you, then you start to get the flow of what worked for you. In general, what I suggest for people, because i mostly talking to people over 50 who are a little bit experienced and or, and or curious, and I say, just start with CBD oil for a week. Take whatever the regular dose standard serving size is of whatever you're getting, whether it be a dropper full of oil or a capsule. Take it once or twice a day. Usually take it with food. It absorbs a little bit better with fats. Just do that for two weeks. Just take the, the minimum amount and see what happens for you. Once it starts to build up in your system and balances your endocannabinoid tone, you can start to see the difference already. If you're not looking to solve any big medical health condition, I would just keep it at 10 to 40 milligrams of CBD per day and treat it like a vitamin. I know it's not the cheapest thing out there. I'd recommend Sun Soil. Uh, CBD does a really good job. And then also a plus CBD oil out of California has a really great array of products out there. That's just worth taking as a general anti antidote to aging, like I said. And the thing with CBD is you can go up a lot higher. There are people who take more like one to 300 milligrams per day of CBD. While it's always good to start low and go slow, every couple of days adding in 10 or 20 milligrams more and seeing if that's helping with your health condition, whether it be pain or sleep or motor control issues with a neurodegenerative, whatever symptom you're looking for, give 100 milligrams of CBD a day a chance for a week and see if that doesn't help. It might be a little bit on the pricey side, but it might be that might be less than what you're paying for other medications. And it's worth trying. Your main risk in taking hemp extracts is that there is small amounts of THC in there and that can be enough to get you high and kind of sneak up on you. Or it can start to upset people's stomachs, especially if you're taking isolated CBD at like 500 milligrams per day for a kid with severe epilepsy. But as long as you're not feeling the psychoactivity or the, the stomach upset, if you're feeling okay with it, you can just keep going higher and seeing if there's benefit. At some point, you might hit a peak of benefit. You don't need 80. You just need 50. So you keep it at 50. But a log would really help you figure out the best amount of CBD and the times a day to take it for you. And once you have that dialed in, you can keep at that level because CBD, usually tolerance doesn't develop to the positive effects of CBD in general. Once you have that baseline of CBD, then you can start exploring THC and you're just not going to get as high, luckily. What CBD does is, it actually binds to the side of the CB1 receptor and changes the shape of the top. And then the THC doesn't bind there quite as well. It's something called allosteric modulation. So it doesn't completely block THC from binding and getting you high, but it does make it less strong. So overall, that protects you from getting way too high. And with THC especially, with older folks, they're more prone to the psychoactivity. It's like they've been sober for 50 years oftentimes. So just start at a milligram or two in an edible form. I think edibles are really good because they might take an hour or two to hit, but then they last for a couple hours and you have a good background level. The one thing to note with THC edibles is that when you eat THC, it gets processed by your liver into a different type of THC. The kind that you smoke and it gets you high right away is called Delta-9 THC. That's the classic. When people say THC, they mean Delta-9. Your liver transforms it into Delta-11 THC. And Delta-11 is something like five to seven times more psychoactive. If you smoke the joint, you might be medium high and like, okay. But if you baked that joint into a cookie and then ate it, you might be too high to have an enjoyable day.
And so you really want to go slow with edibles, especially. I think the power with using THC, if you really want to get good at it, the superpower is find the amount that you take orally every day that gives you a good background level for your pain or your symptoms, and then have a THC vape pen and a CBD vape pen to use for flare-ups of whatever you're having. The cool part about THC is if you do a vape pen of it, it works within two minutes, you're as high as you're going to get. So I remember one old lady with really bad arthritis in her hands, and she just carried a vape pen everywhere she went, and every hour she took a hit. And that's all she needed, a small sip of it. And it kept her balanced all day. She never got high, but it kept her hands from, it kept her hands usable, more usable. It is the power of what we have with this more medicalized system is you have stuff where it's going to be standardized. You always have the same amount, and that's really nice. You can find a system that really works well for you. If you like cannabis flower because you used to smoke it back in the day and you want to go back to that, that's fine. The only problem with cannabis flower is shops don't often have the same stuff all the time, and sometimes – it's certain profiles of the terpenes in there and the cannabinoids that make it really special and work for you. And it might be better to find a packaged product that always has the same thing in it. Um, if you like smoking to get high, both for getting high and for your medicine, that's great. If you used to smoke, that's a great way to do it. If it's someone who's not into the recreational enjoyment side of it, then the best thing is vape pens and edibles, I would say. And once you get good at that, there's a couple other cool cannabinoids that are worth mentioning. For pain and inflammation in the immune system, there's one called PEA, and this is an endocannabinoid-like molecule in our brains that you can just buy online as a dietary supplement. It's wonderful. It's even safer than CBD. It might be the next CBD. It can help for a lot of inflammation and pain conditions. Then there's something called oleamide, which is another neurotransmitter endocannabinoid, and oleamide is amazing for sleep. They actually found oleamide in the brain of a rats because they kept, no, they kept these cats awake for three weeks. Bio, biomedical studies are terrible. It's so hard to write about them sometimes. They kept these cats awake for three weeks and then they tapped their spinal columns and they found this endocannabinoid called oleamide. And it turns out that if humans take it, it just helps you go to sleep. It helps with the melatonin. It helps to regulate your sleep wake cycle. So you can just buy melatonin online and take two scoops before bed. And for some people, it makes a huge difference. You can also take six scoops and get like a nice little high buzz off of it if you're into that as well. But PEA for the immune system and inflammation and oleamide for sleep are two that are rising in importance as people start to realize that these are really cool dietary supplements that can help. Yeah, that was so much knowledge you just had there. Yeah. Would you recommend edibles over smoking for the most part? Because once it is converted in the liver to the different THC form, is that actually better than smoking? Or would you say it's really just based on a preference? Then secondly, if you were to start taking THC gummies or edibles, what specific dose would you recommend someone starting at? Two different tools do two different things. Taking into the lungs is your acute treatment. So fast response to pain or something. And then eating something is your chronic all day kind of treatment. So smoking is acute, eating is chronic. And oftentimes it's finding, some people only need one of those methods and other people, they need to find a balance between those two. They, they might take a certain amount of THC gummies orally every day and then they vape THC as needed. 
for the starting dose of THC, if someone's very nervous about this, you can find one milligram gummies and do that. One milligram is a very, very low dose. If you want to see my collection of studies I did for a company, CV Sciences, you can look at cvresearch.info. And that's where I collected hundreds of studies on CBD. And there's also a collection of studies on ultra low dose THC because there's enough data that even really low amounts of THC, like a one milligram gummy, or even the THC you would find in a typical hemp extract CBD oil, that THC is helping things to work. It's helping the, the CBD to work better. It's doing a little bit on its own. I believe in the microdosing of THC. For most people, two and a half milligrams of THC is a good starting dose. If they're not too nervous about it, like do it on a Saturday when you don't have to drive or something. Just make sure that this isn't going to be too psychoactive. But there's a number of companies now like Plus CBD Oil that are selling 2.5 milligram gummies. That seems like it should be illegal, but it's not because these gummies are made from hemp. And according to U.S. law, if the THC level is above 0.3% in the cannabis plant, then it's it is psych it is recreational cannabis and it is federally illegal if the thc level is below 0.3% thc then it's a hemp plant and anything made from it is legal whether you turn that into fiber or into cbd oil or you transform the cbd into delta 8 thc which is like the new underground way to get high that you can buy at gas stations and stuff you can also just extract the regular amounts of good old delta 9 thc and put it into a gummy as well. Since it's technically made from a hemp plant, it is legal enough in the US that there's a whole bunch of companies selling it. It's a stupid differentiation. No botanist would say that 0.3% THC is the line. And it means that a whole bunch of hemp farmers in the US have to burn their crops because it came out at 0.5%. Even though nobody's smoking a 0.5% or a 1% cannabis plant. It's just more idiocy left over from the war on drugs. But that being said, because of that loophole, it's very easy to get 2.5 milligram doses of THC in a gummy. And whatever company you go for, the only thing I'd say is make sure they have third-party test results. It doesn't matter how nice-looking their graphics are and how much they say they care about quality. They need to have an outside lab looking at cannabinoid levels, which is somewhat important, but especially looking at heavy metal and microbial contaminations because – the hemp plant, cannabis in general, is amazing at sucking up heavy metals and toxins from the soil. So if it's a field that would grow corn fine and not suck up the metal, hemp has much deeper roots and will suck up any contaminations in the soil. And so they're even using this at like old steel mills and uh, Chernobyl to try to pull out bad stuff out of the ground and then just burn the hemp plant to make the ground better. So that's not good if your hemp is getting turned into a medicine. So you need somebody who's testing for heavy metal levels and for microbial contamination. But as long as they have that, there isn't much differentiator. As a consumer, besides the word of mouth of what your friends tell you works for you or what the forums say works for you, third-party test results are the main thing you can look at to trust with a cannabinoid company. I started taking edibles to sleep better. I usually have this thing where I kind of wake up in the middle of the night and then stay awake and fall back asleep around 6 a.m. And so I just have this interrupted sleep. And so I'm like, okay, let's try edibles because that'll just knock me out. I'm still experimenting with what kind of works with me. I remember I took an edible. I'm going to assume because I had to chop up like a little gummy and I would assume I probably had 15 milligrams 
of THC <laughs> in it, it kind of felt like I was having an ayahuasca ceremony with THC. Wow. Without the throwing up, I was just receiving so many downloads of clarity, if you will. And then it felt like I was having the grandmother kind of coming through that kind of like, it starts to scan your body. I felt that whole thing. So it felt like, oh, this is kind of similar to ayahuasca, but very mild. And I'm receiving clarity in my mind. And then I fell asleep. I thought that maybe the gummy was laced with something. It's like, what is happening there? Thank you for sharing. That's a great story. It's part of the hardness of this is just like the psychedelic drugs, set and setting really matter. The contents of your stomach as well as the contents of your mind can really alter things. That gummy, if you had taken it earlier in the day, might have just been kind of a lazy afternoon. But because you were laying in bed, you were maybe in a better place mentally, you let your mind wander into the something that was much more connected. And and on, sometimes gummies just are wildly stronger. It's very hard to test edibles and be very accurate. So it's even the companies making them aren't great at making them that reproducible. So you might have just also gotten an extra strong part of an extra gummy. But what's what's really cool is it's true that cannabis is a psychedelic at certain levels. And it can be at even low levels if you're kind of sitting there waiting to use it that way. There are people in places like Colorado who use the psychedelic aspect of cannabis in mental therapy. They can't give them LSD yet, so they give them a 20 or 50 milligrams of THC, and it's just like it is a psychedelic experience. I know that people interact with this plant spiritually. The typical idea is that it is a multi-headed, uh, she is a multi-headed creature that certain other plant medicines are, they're kind of that feeling, like mushrooms is a control, like LSD is the young, playful one. Uh, Iboga is the grandfather. Cannabis has many different faces. And part of the reason is you have CB1 receptors in different areas of your brain, and everybody has different densities of how many CB1 receptors. So for some people, they might have many more in their amygdala, in their fear center. And that's why every time they touch THC, they get this paranoid, awful anxiety, and they're just smart enough to just not take it ever again. And for other people, it's more in a prefrontal cortex, dreamy kind of place. And they tend to have these spiritual, deep, otherworldly experiences. And the damnedest part is you could be taking the same thing on different days and you get a different effect you're taking the same medicine and it changes for you. It makes it hard to counsel people about how to use this because you can never quite expect. And it takes sometimes months or years of building up a relationship to kind of get where you can go and what can typically happen. And what you said about sleep is especially interesting because to me, sleep is the most fascinating part because it's so temperamental for different people. Some people, THC always keeps them awake. I can't smoke it after a certain time of night, but I know of so many friends who they take THC to knock them out for eight hours straight. And for others, it only works for four hours. And then as soon as they get up, they take another. How the endocannabinoid system and the cannabinoids affect sleep is always different. And the only way you can know if it's gonna, if CBD or THC is gonna wake you up or put you to sleep is by experimenting for a couple of weeks, oftentimes to figure it out but you might find the sweet spot that works great for you. So when you're talking about a higher dose to turn cannabis into a psychedelic, what dose would you say that starts at? I think you kind of alluded to say 20 milligrams is kind of the starting point. 20 milligrams is really starting to get somewhere, especially if you're not used to it. I think 50 milligrams is really next level, if I had to say off the top of my head. But 
I couldn't quite say. I would go on Earwid. If people don't, if uh, Earwid is the great drug information website for people who don't know about it. And for any drug you want to take, they typically have good, solid ingestion tips. How much to take, what kind of, for light, medium, and heavy. Because the thing with edibles is that if they take up to two hours to hit, it can depend on what's in your stomach. Your friend who took 40 milligrams with you, they might within half an hour be on the next realm and now you're at an hour and a half and nothing's happened to you. So you take your next edible, you take the other half and just then the first one kicks in and then you have two and then you're not in heaven. You've gone beyond it to the other world where, where praying mantises are dissecting your liver and stuff like that, which happens. If you like the psychedelic side, you have to read the work of Fitzhugh Ludlow. He was the first American drug writer and his, he has a book on hashish. That was kind of the first book ever done. And in those days you could get hash from the corner drugstore. Store. He worked in a drugstore. He tried all the drugs in the drugstore, and then the pharmacist happened to get hemp, and he starts eating it because he's just a young, roustabout character. And the descriptions are so gorgeous and beautiful. It's exactly like opium dreams, which very few people today have had tried have tried opium, including me. But the the descriptions of how enveloping and luscious and sensuous it is is exactly how he describes these early cannabis experiences. Because at those levels, you are absolutely another world. Uh, but it can start to turn on you. When, you know, Not too long into this, he had just a terrible, terrible trip of paranoia and anxiety starting in a friend's living room. The main key for doing edibles of anything or high dose of anything, don't be around anyone else who's normal, who doesn't know that you're on it. If they're your friends, great. They can know. But don't go to a party and try this stuff if you want to try to be normal. If everyone else in the party is doing it too, great. But like trying to be normal and worrying that people think you're not normal is the worst part. That's why I stick to the woods or my house. And that's about it. Because cannabis can be such a psychedelic. And if you want to use it that way, you can. But you have to treat it with almost more respect than some of the other classic psychedelics. She can really be tricky and intensely hard sometimes. And you don't know what's coming. I think if you enter into these... Uh, medicines with ritual and respect and you say thank you a lot, I think it can really help to set the stage for things going well. I know the best advice I got was from a plant medicine woman I knew out west, and she said, whenever you hit something really hard in your trip, tell it thank you. If you can't do anything else, always say thank I you love that. first. It It's helped me out in times when I mm -hmm. thought something was a bear that was going to eat me, and it turned out it was going to hug me. That's not always true. I read a lot of folklore and fairy history, like some creatures you just should run from, but some are just waiting for a hello. They call DMT the God molecule. Why did they call this the God molecule? Like what is really happening in the body? What's really happening is above my pay grade. Like where DMT and 5-MeO-DMT take you to, if you haven't done it, you can't understand how much they may, might make you question how reality is existing. And maybe it makes a little bit more sense, like 90% of the, the universe is dark matter and dark energy, and we don't know what that means. I think you're spot on with saying that so much of life is things being out of balance. And... One of the things that psychedelics do particularly, which surprised researchers, it was only within the last 10 years that we gave people psychedelics and put them in an FM, fMRI machine and measured what their brain was doing, which is crazy. Like we've had these drugs for how many decades and we didn't even get a chance to put ki college kids in an fMRI machine. Like it's just ridiculous. But what they found was 
it's not that brain activity increased, it decreased. What really decreased was the default mode network, what they say. This is something that's talking all these different parts of the brain and kind of pulling things together. And what it actually did is it lowered activity in this default mode and basically it seems like allowed more pockets of the brain to do their own thing without this overview from the self saying focus in this direction focus in that direction if you're really curious about the state of the mind especially if you're a buddhist or a meditative practitioner small amounts of psychedelics i have often heard really helps open up your meditation practice to seeing what's going on in the brain there's a book zigzag zen about the history of buddhism and psychedelics in the states and the reason Buddhism is here is because of psychedelics. The author of that, Alan Bediner, he interviewed all of the major early teachers, and he said all of them said the reason they got into Buddhism was because psychedelics showed them where their mind could be, and they realized that they didn't want to keep going up and down in this hot air balloon or rocket ship. They wanted to find that naturally. So instead of jumping to the top of the mountain and falling back down, they started using meditation to walk up the path up the mountain. And he said, they all said, this is what got them into meditation. And the last one who said they didn't, later he found out she was lying. It was psychedelics, she just didn't want to admit it. And so these helped open up all of these ideas that are now just in the atmosphere of vegetarianism, environmentalism, and things like that. And it's something that you hear about, especially with ayahuasca. People take ayahuasca and their first or second trip, they come out of it and they're like, oh, nature matters. Like Mother Earth, like there's a nature connectedness here and we need to do better about what's going on with this. And people will say that the spirit of the plant is trying to tell us something and to help us out. If you want to be a strict materialist and say there is no spirit in the plant, then the spirit unlocks that part of yourself that already knew that environment matters and we need to be doing better on these things. I don't really care about the reality of what is happening. I do. I'm fat. I'm wildly curious about it, but... I'm never going to get to know. It's above the abyss of human knowledge, which is great. I'm glad there's something we don't get to figure out. It would, it would, Dostoevsky say, if if everything we in life could be figured out, it'd be very boring. Really yeah. yeah, exactly. So the the theories are fun, but really, when you get into it, if used in a manner where you're trying to be of service to others, you're trying to heal yourself to allow yourself to be more of service to others, it will do that. But the warning is that these are unspecific amplifiers is one of the common terms for them. And you can look at the work of Symposia now talking about the rise of psychedelia in right-wing fascism kind of groups. If you want to use your psychedelics to be a better fascist and to better serve yourself, they will help you serve yourself. When Timothy Leary gave psychedelics to sociopaths in a prison decades ago, it helped them learn to be better sociopaths. And so it's really about approaching this with a service to self or a service to others kind of feeling behind it. That isn't to say you shouldn't focus on yourself and heal thyself first so you can do better to help the world, but it can't be just about you. That's where you start to get into spiritual bypassing where it's like, oh, I, you know, I talk to God. I don't need to worry about the fact that I'm a dick to my, my husband or wife. You need to be good from the feet to the head and not just this third eye open, because there are plenty of teachers who are connected to some really deep truth and they spout them. But when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, they're still not kind people to the people around them. And so if you want teachers in this realm, you want teachers who laugh and care about others, not just who say really good sounding things. Yeah, we talked a lot about uh, cannabis to start this podcast. 
And in terms of the health benefits, it seems like you really focused on cannabis. And I kind of mentioned earlier about the microdosing for PTSD. I think cannabis, THC, CBD is a, is a better medicine to use every day for actual trying to sleep, for PTSD, for, for autism and other neurodegenerative diseases. They're certainly not equal. So what would you recommend for someone that's like, yeah, my kid's got ADHD, my kid has autism, I can't sleep, I got pain. What would you recommend be between mushrooms or LSD or cannabis or something else? It can be very personal. And so if people have a strong feeling in their gut, go with that one. If you really just want to skip the cannabis thing and go straight to microdosing something psychedelic, go with that. Your brain slash gut knows. In general, though, if you are getting into this, I would start with cannabinoids. There's something nice about being able to start with something very, very safe and easy like CBD where you're risking very little. And then slowly experimenting with THC as you get used to this psychoactivity thing. I do hear often about people with young children giving them small amounts of psychedelics for autism. I've heard some amazing stories about that working. These drugs help grow new brain cells. This can be helpful stuff. But you need to know what you're doing then, especially with kids. I would start with CBD first and with elderly people who are scared of it. I mean, I think generally the best ramp is CBD to THC to, to psychedelics, but people are adults and they can skip ahead, especially if they are a stable vessel. If someone has a lot of schizophrenia in their family, they should be very cautious with high levels of THC and psychedelics. A bad trip can bring out a first episode psychosis that might otherwise not have been there. There is a small but real link between that. But for people who don't have that and don't have a serious history, you can start with any of these and you can experiment. You're not risking anything too great. You're going to come back from this. You're not going to go crazy. You might just have a really bad trip. And most bad trips aren't really bad trips. There's something that you need to learn from. Some just are. Like some are just nightmares that like, shit, wish that didn't happen. But most of the time, if you Think about what happened in that for the next weeks or months. Lessons will come out of it about why it felt so dark. It's bringing stuff to the surface that needs to be examined oftentimes. What would be your overall message to the world about plant medicines? I think the most important message that I've learned is these plant medicines are so powerful. They are a gift to humanity to help us figure out how to do better at treating each other. But they're very liable to abuse, both in the corporate market as it's emerging and the greed of capitalism, as well as the drugs themselves can be very heavy for people. And if you want to explore these, it's absolutely paramount that you treat them with respect. You can explore them on your own, but you should be very sure of yourself if you do that. You should have other practices in place that help you with calming meditation and or things like that body practices and if you can find people to work with you'll do better faster if you can find a community of like-minded people to help luckily that's getting easier and easier but these unspecific amplifiers are amplifying a lot of what's going on in the world today and i think with the proper respect they can help amplify more of the good than the bad 
I love Moby Dick, so I'm not exactly sure who's going to win. To follow more about what I'm up to, my website, LexPelger.com, has the first three chapters of my book for free online. You can also see three of my podcasts on there about science and spirituality and psychoactives. If you're into books, I have a TikTok called Lex Pelger and His Books, which is actually very close to my heart because I'll never make any money off of it, but I get to talk about books, and it's a lot of fun. It's a nice community, and there aren't many nice community spaces left online. The main output that I'm doing every week is the cannabinoids and the people newsletter that you can find on Substack. I usually have about 100 science articles going through all the Google alerts for all the new cannabinoid science so I can stay current for creating content for companies with my company, White Whale Creations, and for telling people about how to use these drugs for their own health. And I have a lot of free information on whitewhalecreations.com. And I encourage you to show that the people might be helped by just the FAQs there. And if this might help somebody in your life, I'm here to do consultations. I'm happy to talk to people and see how we can help this with their their health goals. Feel free to reach out to me about anything. I like talking about this stuff. I like being on podcast. It's been great to talk to you. And if anybody wants to email me, it's just pelger at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Lex. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you've come again and we can just continue all these conversations on plant medicines and spirituality. Thanks for all the good questions. It was really a pleasure. Love and light, everybody. And that is it for our episode of El Podcast. Please be sure to find us on YouTube and Spotify. Subscribe and follow. And also all information about Lex will be in the description. And so you can find him, email him. We're so honored to have this conversation. Any topics that you guys do want to discuss and talk about, we're open to suggestions. So please comment below. And we will see you all in the next episode.